Welcome to Supply Chain Now, the voice of global supply chain. Supply Chain Now focuses on the best in the business for our worldwide audience, the people, the technologies, the best practices, and today's critical issues, the challenges and opportunities. Stay tuned to hear from those making global business happen right here on Supply Chain Now. Hey, good morning, everybody. Scott Luton and special guest host Tony Sharota with you here on Supply Chain Now. Welcome to today's episode. Tony, how are we doing? We're doing great. Every time I'm called a special guest host, that that's kind of thrilling for some of us, you know? <laughs> thrilling. Hey, I like how you talk. Uh, well, you know, we've really enjoyed our programming via the Returns and Reverse Logistics Leadership Series here at Supply Chain Now, which, of course, we couldn't do without our partnership with uh, Tony and the Reverse Logistics Association, where he serves as executive director. Tony, we've had some great conversations, right? We have had so many in the last couple of lost years that have been going on, and we actually go back three years. And um, it, it's just uh, it's a little frustrating to be out there alone, and it's so great to have Supply Chain Now being a second voice of the reverse industry, just talking about it at least consistently, um, because you, as you've commented before, it is important, and we just need to hear get more people to hear about it. So it's great. Well, we have a tremendous opportunity today to continue that track record. We've got a big show with a big guest, uh, Howard Rosenberg with B stock will be joining us momentarily. Uh, so Tony, uh, we invite our listeners to stay tuned for a fun and informative conversation. Tony, are you ready to go with Howard? We're ready to go. Y you buckled up <laughs> tight. <laughs> Today it's tight. <laughs> Well, on that note, let's welcome in Howard Rosenberg, founder and CEO of B-Stock. Howard, how are we doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Good to see you guys. Good to see you, Tony. You too, Howard. It's been a long, long time, and uh, unfortunately. Uh, but looking forward to 2022 being a, a much better year, right, Howard? Absolutely. Well, on that note, so that, of course, there's... Uh, for for many 2021 despite the environment and despite some of the challenges and and the uh, unusual aspects of what we're fighting through it's still been a successful year and i love from the returns and the reverse logistics industry we've seen a ton of innovation here uh whether that includes companies like b stock or some of the other companies uh tony you talk to day in and day out but today it's all about howard rosenberg uh, his journey and some of the cool things that B Stock's doing, as well as getting Howard's take on on some of the things that this challenging year has uh, taught us all. So, uh, Howard, are you ready to get started here today? I'm ready to go. All right. Well, again, thanks for your time. Let's get to know Howard Rosenberg a little bit better here today. So, we had a chance to chat a little bit pre-show. Well, I, I learned a couple of new things about you, including where you are now, but more importantly, where you grew up. So, tell us. Where did you grow up and, and Howard, give us a few anecdotes about your upbringing. Sure. Um, so I grew up outside of Boston, uh, about 30 miles south of Boston, a town called Hingham. Um, I actually moved there, I think I was around six, seven, something like that from Ohio, okay. where I was born in Columbus. Um, but grew up primarily there in Boston, uh, in a, you know, nice, nice little suburb. Um, as far as, uh, you know, anecdotes about my upbringing, I mean, I guess right. 
the most notable I would say or relevant was uh, would be uh, that I grew up in a very entrepreneurial family. Uh, my father was an entrepreneur, my brother, I have an uncle who's an entrepreneur, his two kids, both entrepreneurs. So um, sort of in my blood to, to do this whole entrepreneurial thing. And I guess <laughs> despite having started in, in finance in my career, and I, I kind of always knew I'd end up sort of on the entrepreneurial side. Um, one of the first things I did as a kid work-wise was working for my dad in his business. Uh, and his business was a shoe, a shoe company. Uh, okay. He sold large size women's shoes uh, via mail order uh, and retail. He had some retail stores. Wow. Um, and while I don't think there was any connection or I didn't draw any connection to this at the time, certainly looking back on it is interesting to me and looking at how he thought about inventory. Um, inventory to him was always his biggest concern. And it was always what he was most stressed out about because the inventory sitting there in the warehouse on the shelves represented the bank debt that he had used to build mm -hmm. the business. Uh, it was, right. you know, this was in the eighties when bank debt was, you, you just, that's how you built your business. You borrowed, you know, ven venture capital, at least for a company like his was not a thing. Um, and so the more inventory he had, the more debt he had, uh, and mm -hmm. vice versa. And so it was always, um, you know, he was always thinking about like, how do I minimize my inventory? How do I get rid of the excess? How do I not have it sitting in the, in the warehouse? Um, and so, yeah, that kind of, I guess that got a little bit ingrained in me and at a, at an early age. Um, in fact, I later on, maybe in the very early in the internet, uh, but a while back, maybe 97 or so, um, built him a website for his company. Really? Um, and it turned out, wow. you know, it wasn't like a fully equipped e-commerce website or anything, but it was kind of an online catalog. And it turned out to be the best mechanism he'd ever found for clearing out his excess inventory. You know, <laughs> we, we put the thing up and it was running for a couple of few months. And he, one day he said to me, wow, I was walking around the warehouse and I, all those, all the shoes in this area that were just his, you know, kind of the excess, they were gone. <laughs> and he's, he kind of didn't even realize it because wow. they were just sort of going out the back door via this website. Um, I love that. So, I, so I, I got to ask a couple of quick follow-up <laughs> questions before I pass the baton to Tony here. So Howard, uh, first question, obviously uh, in the nineties or so you built a website you, you're talking about for your father, but back when you were still a kid there uh, growing up in Massachusetts in your earliest days, what do you, what do you remember in those earliest days doing in his business? Oh, I, I was a warehouse worker. Uh, I was picking and packing shoes uh, sweeping the warehouse, um, and then uh, eventually graduated to working in the, get a little outlet store in the corporate office. Again, just always needed a clearance outlet for getting rid of excess. So we had a little, little clearance retail store there in the, uh, in the warehouse. And I worked in that store. Um, you know, it was a typical shoe store. It's just that all the shoes were women's sizes, 10 to 15. Right. Uh, man, gosh, uh, the lessons that, that offered, wow. uh, the kind of that well-rounded from warehouse to retail to eventually even e the earliest days of e-commerce. Uh, one other quick follow-up question, almost related. You were born in Ohio in the Midwest. 
moved to the East Coast in your formative years in Massachusetts. Now you're out on the West Coast in California. You know, I got to talk about food for just a second. Um, yeah. Your favorite <laughs> from Midwest to the East Coast to West Coast. What's one thing that uh, you can't live without or one of your favorite foods from uh, uh, from your journey? Well, I'm still a huge fan of Maine lobster. Uh, that, that, that was always a, um, we, I spent my summers up in Maine often with some, some relatives who lived on the lake up there and we were big lobster fans. Uh, and so, yeah, that's, that's probably the highlight for me. Tough to beat. I'm with you. Um, all right. So Tony, I hate to, to just, uh, tease everyone with a little bit of great food there, but we got work to do. Where are we going next, Tony? Well, um, I've known Howard, uh, wow, almost 20 years now, I think, uh, from early days that uh, uh, he was at eBay and we were part of this uh, association to try to uh, address returns. Way, way, uh, let's not date ourselves too too badly, Howard, right? It, it, it already shows. But but Howard, you, you did spend some time at eBay a uh, uh, number of years and, and it was an important part of your journey. Um, can you tell us what got you to eat? I mean, the story was great about Boston. And then how do you get over to the West Coast and join eBay? And what did you do there, if, if you would? Yeah. Um, so I got to the East Coast prior to eBay. Um, it was basically on a whim. I decided I had left my, my first job out of college was in New York. I had left that job and decided I was going to go back to business school what am I going to do for the next? I had like nine months to kill basically before school would start. I decided I'm going to move to California. I, I've never lived there. I was, I was out visiting some friends a few months earlier and had a blast. And it's like, I just want to go try living in San Francisco and see how that is. Um, and I basically never left. I mean, here I am, you know, 30 <laughs> years later. Um, but I, I, how I got to eBay, um, was that I had uh, I had done another startup back in kind of the 2000 time frame um, and had sold it and was then looking for what I was going to do next. And I forget exactly how it happened, but somehow I, I think I got contacted by someone at eBay who knew me from my business school experience. Um, and they were looking to hire a uh, business development person within eBay Motors. Okay. And I kind of looked at it and I was like, geez, like there's 1500 people at this company. You know, that's that to me, that was a big company. Uh, at that sure. point in my career, I had not been at a company with more than 25 people. Um, and I, you know, I wasn't sure it was really going to be right for me. But then at the end of the day, I thought, you know what? It, a, it's it's within this little startup within the company. It, it's this eBay right. Motors thing. It was 15 people at the time, and it was growing like crazy. And I just thought, this is going to feel like a startup within a big company. But at the same time, it's an opportunity for me to really learn some of the processes and um, just just some of what you need to know to run a larger company. Um, you know how how things get. Uh, how things are run in a bigger organization, which I thought would just be use, you know, useful for me to learn firsthand. Um, and so that's what drew me, uh, that's what drew me to eBay. So um, it kind of was the best of both worlds, a little bit entrepreneurial, but the experience of a big company. And 
those were the early years though of eBay really still. Uh, even though there were 1500 people, it had been active for what, just a few years when you got there. Yeah. I mean, that was, um, that was 2002. Um, and eBay started when like 96, 97, something like that. So it, it was, it didn't feel like a startup anymore, uh, to me, but at the same time, it was 1500 people. And when I left six years later, it was 15,000 people. Wow. Right. The early years. And, and, it, right. It, no, it, that's fine. It, it kind of grew fast. And and you mentioned the part about being in that little niche uh, startup, uh, the eBay Motors, uh, but you didn't stay there. You kind of uh, developed a little bit, as you said, entrepreneurial skills. And then is that what led you out, that entrepreneurial uh, spirit that was inside you from you know early years of growing up? Did that take you out of eBay into the B-Stock world? Well, what, what I skipped over was a, a, the majority of my time there at eBay after eBay Motors. Uh, I did that for about two years. And okay. after those two years, <clears throat> I had discovered that we acquired this company, a uh, company from Boston called Fair Market. And they, we acquired it for completely different reasons. Uh, but what I saw was that there were a couple of companies using this platform, this Fair Market platform, as what we called private marketplaces and it more or less what B-Stock does today. And when I saw that, I thought, boy, this actually solves two really big problems we've had here at eBay for many, many years. Um, those two problems, one was uh, trying to get enterprise sellers selling on eBay. We had been trying over and over and over again for many, many years to get the big enterprise retailers and manufacturers selling directly on eBay. And they would come on board, they would try it, they would start to grow, and then they would churn. And it just wasn't, uh, they would just basically tell us it's too hard. It's not, it's not worth, the, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. Um, so that was on one side. On the other side, we had our eBay power sellers, which were the small, you know, the small sellers selling on eBay. Uh, well, the biggest of the sellers, but they were small businesses. And every time we surveyed these guys and we said, what's your number one barrier to growth of your business on eBay? They would tell us it's reliable access to high quality inventory. They just couldn't, they didn't have good, reliable access to inventory. Right. It was, you know, back then you either were one of a very small handful of companies that knew the people at the big retailer who were selling the liquidation product just because you, right. I don't know, you played golf with them or you went to church with them. Somehow you just knew these people. <laughs> or you were buying from liquidators, which was a horrible experience. Um, and so I put these two well, things really together. Quick, and Howard. Said, Howard, really Pardon? quick. Why was, was buying from liquidators such a bad experience? Oh, <laughs> the stories. <laughs> oh. Where to begin? Go ahead. Yeah, um, where to begin? Really? <laughs> just for for, it, for someone that may never have done that, what what's one or two things that usually came with that experience? So it was, I would say, um, if you think about the um, sort of the uh, stereotype of the liquidation, you know, transaction happening in the alley back behind the. <laughs> You know, behind the building where someone has a truck and they like, look, show, look what's in the truck. Uh, it wasn't quite like that, but it was not it was very close. transparent. 
Um, it was, you know, it was, it, it's a zero sum game between you and the liquidator, right? Like you're trying to get the lowest price. He's trying to get the highest price. You're negotiating and they're, they're playing little games to, you know, when it went online, it was like, oh, look, here's a picture of a pallet. And you see like the, the Dyson vacuum cleaner in the front and the, I don't know, the, the fancy whatever. And then you can't see what's behind it, which, you know, they would kind of jam all the garbage behind it. And, you know, they would just, they'd come up with little tricks to try and maximize their own business, their own profit. Um, you usually had to call somebody on the phone and like, hey, what do you have? And go oh, describe that for me. And, you know, it's not like just going down to the store right. and shopping in the store and picking out what you want. You're trying to buy large volumes of inventory basically by phone or they're sending you a fax or a, an email with a big <laughs> list of product. Um, so it just was, yep. it was very inefficient. Um, and that's what we ended up capitalizing on was the inefficiency. And, and just like eBay did in the consumer world, we used to say we're bringing efficiency to inefficient markets. And that's what drove eBay's success. And we, we more or less did the same thing. Uh, and and what, what I saw when I was looking at those two problems at eBay was an opportunity to do exactly that. Mm. We could take uh, we could take the retailer uh, that problem of you know trying to adapt to sell on eBay and that just being too hard. Now we had kind of a semi customizable platform and we could just customize it to their business. So you tell us how you do business, we'll customize the platform to work with you uh, in an efficient way. Um, and then my, my idea was, hey, if we can build these marketplaces for all the big retailers and manufacturers and kind of own those pipes through which the, the, the inventory is flowing, we, meaning eBay at this point, I'm still, remember, I'm still on eBay. Right, right. <laughs> uh, we, we could go put our power sellers at the other end of those pipes and say, great news, power sellers, all the inventory you'd ever need. And here it is. It's all transparent. You can see it all here nice manifest. You don't have to negotiate with anybody. You decide what you want to pay for it. You just put in your bid in this auction site. If your bid happens to be the best bid, you're going to win. And it, and that was another big difference uh, in the old way versus the new way. With this mechanism, it was all you had to do to win the merchandise was bid the most. Whereas back in the old days, even if you were willing to offer the most money, there was no guarantee you were getting the inventory. Because the person who controlled the inventory might just favor one person over another for any reason. Right. Wow! Who took me golfing this week? You know, okay, you can have <laughs> So, so it's really fascinating to kind of hear the wild, wild west before kind of the the, the current day and the more forward-looking and and better optimized approach at um at, at the current marketplace. So, Tony, I want to get you to. Just quickly comment. I'm gonna. Um, I want to talk with Howard about uh, B stock, what it does in those early days here in just a second. But Tony, comment on what you just heard Howard describe. I was there. Um, <laughs> I looked at that at Phillips, and to Howard's point, uh, I I will uh, uh, apologize and say there was fraud and and illegitimate activities involved going on, which is why I was appointed the head of a returns management group at, at Phillips, because to Howard's point, it was 
who shook whose hand and what did you put behind their back for them and things like that. It was really a wild, wild west in the worst possible way. And 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 those relationships existed um, from old school days and, and we changed the world right then. We changed it at Phillips, Howard changed it at eBay and, and with B-Stock in terms of two parts. One is that manifesting. Uh, in the old days, you weren't always sure what you would get. Uh, Howard gave a good analogy of sometimes you use a, a big screen TV to hide the rest of the garbage that was in the box uh, or the or the Gaylord palette. So it really was an unfortunate situation. And at Phillips, for example, we had over 200 accounts buying this stuff. When I took it down to 25, we actually collected more money for that stuff because they knew who they were bidding against, as Howard mm. suggests, but they also right. knew it was legitimate merchandise. So it really, th those were early days of changing that secondary market approach, uh, liquidation completely. And uh, I'm proud of Howard and, and what we did at Phillips and what Howard did. I love that. <clears throat> A lot more transparency. Uh, it's, it, the buyers, it seems like to me, and what I'm hearing, could trust the information we're getting, could trust uh, who they're dealing with, and could really trust the process and the quality of, of what was at stake. So um, I appreciate yes. both of y'all uh, shedding some light on that. Let's. So Howard, uh, exciting. I, I love what we've heard thus far. Uh, your background, both from a family standpoint uh, of, of changing things and entrepreneurialism, to you know being a disruptor inside of a a young but disruptive company uh and how you still you know how that illustrated some problems that still needed to be solved and all of that leads to uh the 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 founding of b-stock so tell us more about when you started b-stock and in a nutshell what the company does today yeah um yeah, I guess I, I I strayed off the off the path of answering your question about how I left eBay. Like, what was that transition? <laughs> to to just give give you that as I get into the B stock thing. Sure. I did this for about four years at eBay, and then two thousand eight hit, and you know you know it was going on in two thousand eight, and the decision was made at eBay to basically put all hands on the core business. So there were a number of little businesses like uh, like the one I was running that we're just going to be stopped and we're just going to put everybody back on the core to kind of save the mothership. Um, I didn't really want to be part of the mothership at that point. eBay was 15,000 people, not my thing. Uh, I'm just, I don't, it's not, I'm not excited about right. you know, different strokes, different like folks. That. Yep. Yeah. So uh, it was, it was towards the end of 08 that eBay, you know, everyone kind of was not a, big secret that there was a big round of layoffs coming at eBay as a result of the financial crisis. I sort of nudged my way onto that list um, to, to just make my exit at that point. And so that's how I ended up leaving eBay. Um, as I thought about what I was going to do next, I, it wasn't obvious that I was going to start B-Stock, um, but I knew, I mean, I just saw from my experience over those last four years that this was a business. What we were doing was a clearly going to be a successful business. We were creating so much value for our customers. You know, every one of them was telling us, "You're increasing my recovery rates by fifty percent, eighty percent, a hundred percent. Like this is amazing." Um, and the buyers at the same time were super excited because they were seeing and getting inventory they never, they never could get before. And all of a sudden, people were growing businesses and starting companies. And, 
And so it was pretty clear to me that there was an opportunity here, but it was like raining fire outside in November of 2008. And the idea of starting a company was still a little bit, uh, I wasn't sure I could actually achieve that at that point in time. Um, obviously it turns out that I could, I, I got together with somebody, a friend of mine from business school who was a venture capital guy. And I just was picking his brain. I wasn't even trying to raise money. I was like, Hey, do you, you think I'm crazy to start a company right now? Would I be able to raise any money? And within about 10 seconds, he was like, yeah, we'll do it. And so at that point I was kind of like, all right, I guess I have to really consider doing this. Um, so that's how I got started. Uh, that was January of 09 at this point, I guess, okay. when, when we kind of had a term sheet with an investor and we started working on our platform. Um, and so now to get to your question, what do we do? In, in simplest terms, what do we do? Uh, I would say at the simplest level, we, we help retailers and manufacturers make more money with their liquidation inventory. And we do that by operating marketplaces that are auction-based marketplaces primarily. Um, we bring massive buyer demand. We put this inventory up in front of all these qualified buyers who are interested in the particular type of inventory. We use technology, we use data and analytics to optimize and we let buyers compete for the inventory. And the result of that, you know, really leveraging my, uh, my economics background from college, supply and demand. And you, you, if you have enough of a buyer base, you are going to get the fair market value for whatever you put in front of them. Mm. And that fair market value happens to be far more than traditional liquidators pay these guys for their inventory. Mm. So that's how the system drives higher recoveries for the retailers. So one quick question. Uh, a moment ago, you used the phrase recovery rates when it comes to sellers. C can you explain that a little bit more? Because uh, um, it, on that side of the marketplace, that's a really important uh, metric and a really important driver, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, mo most of our clients measure their performance in liquidation via recovery rate. And what it means is the price they they get for this liquidation product divided by either the original retail value or the COGS, cost of goods. Different companies use either revenue or, or retail or COGS. <clears throat> so if you have an item that would normally sell at retail for $100 and you liquidate it for 20, you get a 20% recovery rate. Gotcha. Okay. Um, excellent. Um, and, and, and it's not just complete loss. Uh, you, you're getting something back for what those cost you to, to bring to market in the first place. Um, so Howard, y'all have grown since, since that fateful um, lunch, as it were, I think with a college buddy that was an investor, you, you're picking his brain as you, as you put it. Uh, and all of a sudden he saw the opportunity. It sounded like, and then y'all are off to the racing, uh, off to the races. Y'all have grown dramatically since then. And if I heard you right, that was January, 2009. Is that right? That's right. Okay. And so now here, as we're about to enter 2022, B stock has grown dramatically. You're hiring left and right. You're working with 
some of the biggest names in the, on the Fortune 1000 side. But on the flip side, you're working with a bunch of small businesses and all points in between. If you can, d- describe y'all's growth a bit. And as a founder, gosh, you've got to be beaming. you got to be jumping out of bed each morning, huh? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely, I'm super proud of the work that, you know, all our folks have done. Um, and, you know, we, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty, um, I don't know, I guess it's sort of inspiring to me looking back at over the last, you know, 13 years and, and seeing what we've accomplished. Um, you know, when we started, we sort of had, you know, there were some 800 pound gorillas out there in the industry and we kind of looked right. at them and said, Oh, someday we're going to, you know, we're going to be taking them on. And, um, and, uh, you know, now they're, they're all in the rearview mirror. Um, right. you know, we, uh, we have successfully become the largest, uh, player in the business, uh, from a volume standpoint, uh, as far as we know, I mean, there, there's, there aren't that many public companies in the space. There's one, you can see all of their numbers, but others are private, but, um, so it's harder to know their specific numbers, but, um, but what we know is, uh, that the company, like you said, it's grown tremendously. Um, it's all, it's, it's all thanks to the people we've hired and put around this thing. Um, we've just got a great quality, crew in every in every area of our business um and i think our growth is just a testament to the work they've done and the and the solution you know right. just it, it it's better it's the better mousetrap and right. we we figured out a better mousetrap and then that doesn't do you any good unless you have all the right people in place to take that out to the market and execute on it yep and, and nature of the problem that you're solving, uh, which is also good for industry. It's good for consumers. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's good for a lot of change that we're all trying to drive across industry. Um, I'm going to ask you about culture next, uh, a quick uh, kind of a, uh, on, on a somewhat related note. But Tony, before I do, your quick comment on uh, what I'll call the rise of B-Stock. I mean, you know, you've known Howard for quite some time. Your comment on what you've seen? Um, Howard always had a, a, a an important passion for this industry and for making a difference. And uh, we knew that at Phillips and, and we, we, uh, we talked many times about doing things, but actually we stole Howard's idea and we, and we did it ourselves at Phillips. So um, we were that impressed with what kind of business model that was like, we can do this. And I think electronics companies a little different. They tend to uh, be able to do that themselves, the Dells and the HPs of the world. But, Howard opened up a window. Uh, keep in mind, this is early before the term sustainability was a big deal and the circular right. economy didn't exist. And that's what Howard and B-Stock helped create and, and help manage and run every day. I'm just proud of that. We don't even think about this when we think about B-Stock or the RLA. We don't even think about the fact that we're not just making a difference for consumers and for companies. We're making a difference at the planet level. I mean, this is stuff that's not going into landfill. And and that's, to me, a huge part of uh, what drives us behind the scenes, right? I mean, Howard can be very proud, but he's not just proud of the volume that they they generated, but the fact that this stuff is not being dumped in landfills and, and it's helping and the retailers love it. They love the solution that's being provided for them because they don't always know what to do with this stuff. We right. hear that so many times, right, Scott? Even on on some of the podcasts, the the, the broadcasts, we hear, you know, what what do we do with this stuff? And Howard right. and B Stock have created an incredible solution 
that uh, we love to see. Agreed. Lots of purpose, but lots of practical. I love practical solutions. Uh, you know, I, I was, uh, as you know, Tony, I once gave my my dear wife an umbrella for Valentine's Day. I, it's something I'll never, ever live down. I noticed, though, she was walking in the rain. She didn't have an umbrella. So I saw a problem meet solution. Oh, she loves giving me a hard time about that, Howard. But uh, uh, let's talk for a second. Um, we're going to broaden the conversation out, uh, kind of moving away from the B-Stock story as we move towards uh, key lessons that 2021 taught and kind of other observations around industry. But Howard, before we leave B-Stock, you know, as a fellow founder, right, culture is, is um, I don't know about you, but it courses through my veins, right? And I, I know when, uh, when we've had great weeks that really embody what we're after and what we're trying to build. And then we know those challenging days too. Um, what are you most proud of when it comes to the culture at B-Stock? Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you came back to that. Um, culture has always been, <clears throat> excuse me, has always been super important to me. Um, in fact, from the very beginning, when I started the company, I kind of said to myself, you know, I, I'm going to be spending a lot of time on this. Um, I'm going to be spending, you know, I'm sure 18 hours a day, and it's probably going to be something I'm going to be doing 18 hours a day on for the next five to 10 years, right? I, I expected that it was going to be a long road. And I want to, I want to enjoy going to work every day. I want to want to go to work every day. And so I have to surround myself with people I want to be around. And that is, I think, just another way of saying, I want to build a culture that I'm going to enjoy. And um, I think if I enjoy it, others will enjoy it. And that, that will help drive us, uh, drive success in the business. And so, you know, as I thought about that early on, I thought, you know, I had certain ideas of what was important to me, probably at the top of the list was being around smart people who were fun um, and who were, you know, as, as driven to make this thing successful as I was. And so that's kind of that, that was the foundation of who, who I kind of started hiring at the beginning. Um, and I, if, if there's any, any one thing I think that has driven the success of the company more than more than anything else, I think it's been the culture that we've we've created, um, and it started at the very beginning. I mean, with the first five people, and it was hiring according to those you know general um, guidelines, like hire people who are really smart, hire people who are fun to be around, who you're going to like to go in and see every day, and. You know, you put the right people there in the first five or ten, they're going to just continue to propagate that over time. And uh, you know, it get it got quite challenging over the years as we grew. You know, the first first fifty people, it's pretty easy to stick to like like everybody still hires like according to the guidelines, right? Um, between fifty and hundred, it starts to get a little more challenging. We started to have offices, multiple offices um, around the country. That added a challenge. You know, when you've got a group in Boston and a group in the Bay Area, and it's you know you're not seeing each other every day necessarily. So it just that gets a little harder. Um, but uh, but with the right core group, you know, it just sort of propagates and 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 sustains itself. Um, rapid growth also makes it quite hard, you know, when you're hiring, when 50% of your employees are new each year, like new right. to the company, like that's a lot of dilution yeah. of the culture. Um, 
But I'd say the biggest challenge with regard to culture, bar none, has been the last two years. Uh, this whole COVID thing with remote work and not seeing each other in person, not, you know, whether it's working together every day next to each other or just socializing and going out for beer and pizza after work and just all those little things that um, that contribute to that fun, you know, the, the fun part of, of work. Um, it's been really, really challenging dealing with that over the last couple of years. Well, there's so much that you shared there, and I really appreciate how, how genuine and transparent you've been about um, not just the, the current state culture, but kind of the process and, and how growth how growth and the most recent set of, of, of incredibly challenging circumstances have 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 um, disrupted uh, that culture that that's so important to you. So I appreciate you sharing. That's a wonderful segue, Tony, to what you're going to ask yeah. uh, Howard about next, right? Well, I do want to point out that Howard actually at B-Stock had a, a virtual company before virtual became virtual companies became a thing. So uh, you did have the remote offices and you and you grew the culture in spite of that. Uh, but your comments about the last couple of years are are truly important uh, about some of uh, what we've lost. Uh, uh, and it's a challenge. We can overcome it and we all have. But it's not normal human activity to be separated the way we have been. And we all look forward to opportunities to get together more uh, and, and be safe when we get together, of course. Uh, but Howard, the last couple of years, we've, of course, seen a huge uh, shift to e-commerce and sales by online sellers and returns have skyrocketed. We know that as well. Returns with the e-commerce platform significantly higher than brick and mortar, but brick and mortar has been closed. So it's been uh, a force feed into the uh, e-commerce space. So uh, 2020 was kind of a stumble, but 2021, a little bit of a footing uh, with, with the way business acclimated, adjusted, and there's some takeaways. So in addition to that e-commerce shift, uh, which, by the way, it's still it, it's still less than twenty percent of the total economy, but it but it's a significant part of the return side, Howard. So it's affected you. It's affected all of us. Um, talk about takeaways now that twenty twenty one is looking in the rearview mirror. What are your takeaways uh, from that shift of the business and the shift of the returns? <clears throat> yeah, um, that that's a great point. I mean, the the shift in the shift to e-commerce has been obviously a huge driver. Um, uh, in fact, I'd, I'd say it's kind of the, the, the second tsunami um, that we've experienced in B-Stock's life, kind of propelling the business forward. The first was kind of Amazon coming along with their, their mission to be, I forget the exact wording, but the world's most customer-centric company or something like that. When they, when they kind of, dug into that right. as their mission, it, that sparked free returns, no questions asked, we'll pay for it, like anything you want. Uh, that was the first right. big tsunami that drove returns in retail in general, because everyone had to compete with that. Every, um, everyone had to do it, right. And now you've got this, this e-commerce shift with, you know, two to three times the, the return rate. So absolutely right on that. Um, I think if I if I think back to the year and I think what what big takeaway um, 
there might be from the from the, the experience that we've seen out there in the business from the perspective of a retailer or a brand um, the importance of making sure <clears throat> excuse me making sure your uh, solution and this probably applies to anything in their business not just liquidation but relying on solutions that are resilient enough to to withstand the kind of shocks that a pandemic can bring. Um, We had so many, uh, so many examples. Maybe this was a little bit in 2020, uh, but I think we probably saw kind of the recovery from it in 21. Examples of companies who were reliant on a single liquidator to buy all of their liquidation product or maybe two liquidators. And they got shut down. They got shut down. And as soon as that, like, what are you going to do then? Like all this inventory is not leaving your warehouse. It's just sitting there. So that drove a lot of folks, you know, to us because, you know, if you think about a marketplace, it's kind of like a self-healing organism. You know, if we have a thousand buyers in our network get shut down due to COVID, no one's going to even notice because there's so many other buyers who will just fill in those gaps. Hmm. And so, um, it, it, it's just, it really put a fine point to me on how important it is to make sure what you're doing, like you have that kind of resilience in any mission, mission critical piece of your business. Um, who, who would have thought that a pandemic would hit, right? Like, you know, you, you can't really predict that, but if it wasn't a pandemic, it could have been something else. It could have been a, a weather event or an earthquake or something right. else. And if you don't have solutions that can that can be resilient to those events, you're, you're putting yourself at a bit of a disadvantage. Right. Uh, how, gosh, speaking to that, one of your last thoughts there, uh, just earlier this week, I was watching uh, the movie from 2013 called dark skies. And there's a moment in this film where, uh, not to go too deep, but uh, there was a moment where these two kids are, are, are um, uh, playing uh, are teasing each other. And they're handling some things that should be handling. And one of them said, you're going to be, you're, you're, you're going to cause a pandemic. You're going to be quarantined. Right. And who would have thought to your point exactly in 2013, that was just a harmless little joke. Right. Uh, and then of course, we're where we are here at the end of 2021. So, but Tony, to your point, we are going to persevere. We've learned a ton. One of my favorite things to talk about is, is all the different ways that we've learned that are going to make the business in global industry stronger and better uh, that that weren't necessarily related to the earliest days of the pandemic. It was just kind of a a rolling series of lessons learned, adjustments, and innovations. So that's one of the big silver linings here. Um, all right, for the sake of time, Tony and Howard, I want to keep moving into this global resale market because it really is. I find it fascinating, and it's such a, a there's such a feel good to it, right? Uh, one of my dear friends went out and bought a a 1979 Cadillac, uh, one of the long El Dorados. And it really just puts a, it's like spike in the football of what's old is new again. And I love that. I, I bought a yeah. Nintendo Wii for my kids, which they quit making forever ago. It, but if you look at the, the global resale market, some project it to grow to over $130 billion by 2024. That's one of the studies I saw. So um, Howard, what, when you look at, you know, what's powering that growth? What's a trend or two that you point that are easy to point to? 
if if I might, for Howard's sake too, let me just yeah. point out, um, Scott, you're talking about the resilience of our economy and the rebound. Uh, National Retail Federation and others are saying this is one of the largest holiday seasons in sales ever, ever. And yes, there's inflation, but there's <clears throat> pent up demand that people went out and shopped like crazy. And despite the supply chain issues earlier this year, they found enough stuff to buy that we set records on selling. And Howard, that's going to lead to next year records in returns. And where's that going to go? Talk about that secondary market. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, we've talked about probably the, the, the biggest one, which is that, um, that shift to e-commerce. I mean, that clearly, um, that clearly is going to outweigh any other um, factor increasing the volume, I think, coming to this market. And when you've got two to three times the return rates and it's growing at the rate that it's growing, I mean, we've probably seen five to 10 years worth of e-commerce adoption in the last two years. You know, at the, at the prior trajectory, like it would have taken right. five or 10 years to get where we've now gotten. So exactly. that that's definitely um, a big one, um, but there's other stuff going on that are maybe, I mean, they're they're certainly impactful and maybe a little more nuanced. But one, just thinking about it over the long term of how since we've been in this business, we you know the the effect of us being in the market driving these higher recovery rates has been a gradual increase in the general recovery rate environment for this type of inventory. You know, even people not participating in our market are having to pay higher prices because we've we've made it, you know, it's no longer true that you can buy, I don't know, just picking making up numbers, but if you used to be able to buy electronics for 20 cents on the dollar, now we're getting 40 cents on the dollar and we've driven right. that up over the years, you're not going to be able to just go somewhere else and buy for 20 cents on the dollar anymore. And so just the fact that we're raising that tide, we're raising the, the, the water level on the entire industry from a price standpoint, makes it economically more palatable and interesting for a company to consider liquidating something they might not have liquidated in the past. So right. for example, you know, if you think about like a markdown cadence in a retailer, you know, product that's out on the floor, they might mark it down to 30% off after X amount of time, then go to 40% off, then go to 50% off. Well, there's a line at which when they hit that line, they say, okay, just take it off the floor and get rid of it. Right. Well, if the whole, if the whole level of the, the ocean has risen such that liquidation prices are now up 50%, they can draw that line sooner. And Higher. that results in more stuff being liquidated sooner because it's economically more viable. Lastly, I would say... Um, there's a much greater awareness today than there was 10 years ago of the environmental impact of what's, what used to happen to all these products. And it, you know, we, we have clients in our roster today that used to just throw away all this inventory or hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars worth of inventory thrown away. And now they don't. Now they now they see that it has value to somebody. Um, Circular. And so, yeah, and and now there's like, I mean, the, the buzzword is circular economy, you know, re-commerce, yep. all of that, which is coming coming to the forefront. It's always existed. 
Um, you know, you could always go to a thrift store or go to the flea market. It's just now it's becoming more mainstream and it's becoming more easily accessible. Uh, and more products are arriving in that market because the inventory is becoming more accessible upstream directly from the retailers and manufacturers. Uh, so all of those things contribute, uh, and are, are driving that volume and we'll continue to, I think. A ton of good news and just what you shared. I think there's a ton of good news in, in this conversation we're having here today in general. Um, and I also love the demand we're seeing and the interest we're seeing uh, across the consumer world in, in all these products as well. Um, okay. So I want to get, and I want to pose this next question to both of you. Tony, you're, you're kind of, you're kind of a guest host slash pseudo pseudo guest here today. Uh, but I'm gonna start with you, Tony, uh, uh, Howard rather. What would be one aspect if you're speaking to uh, the consumer universe, the folks that aren't you know plugged into the reverse space or the return space, or maybe even global supply chain? What's one aspect of the re- of returns and the returns world that you believe, Howard, may be the most misunderstood by consumers? <clears throat> hmm. Well, I mean, as I think about that question. Um, I think there's two perspectives from which a consumer um, might uh, interact with the returns world. One is as the returner, they could be returning a product. And the other is as a purchaser of return merchandise in the secondary market. Um, In either of those two cases, I think the consumer, neither of those two have any idea of the complexity of what's going on in between those two points. Um, you know, you return something like you buy something online, you just take it to your mailboxes, et cetera, or your UPS store, you just drop it off. You don't even box <laughs> it. You just twice. drop it yep. and it's just gone right to you. It's just yep. gone. Um, but the complexity <laughs> of what's happening from that point all the way through the reverse supply chain until it lands back on the kitchen table of the next person who buys it is pretty remarkable. Um, you know, there is a lot happening there. Um, now, I guess the beauty of the, the whole returns world is that it doesn't matter that they don't understand. They don't, they don't really need to understand that. Right. Um, there is a, a very well-developed industry of logistics uh, solutions that is making that prod process more and more efficient. Um, and the more efficient that process becomes, the better it is for both of those constituents, the buyer and the returner and the buyer. Um, you know, there's only so much value in a given product, right? Like a, a $50 product that's going to be, you know, returned is only going to have so much juice in there to squeeze out. And the, the, the less of that juice that gets lost in the trip between the return and the repurchase, it's better for both sides. Right. Um, because the retailer can be more aggressive about letting you return things and how you return things if they're not losing as much money in that process. And uh, that will only serve to create more uh, more variety and more choice for the purchaser because more stuff will end up being liquidated since it's more efficient. So I think that's well the best said. I can do for you on that. <laughs> no, I love it. And, and I love going back to the, the beauty. You, you folks don't have to know how it works. It's, it's kind of like the, uh, 
uh, reminds me of the low code, no code movement, right? Folks yeah. don't know how the ins and outs of a, of a computer language to be able to build their own apps and, 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 and platforms and whatnot. Uh, I, I think that's a great thing. Uh, just like the modern day global supply chain just enables that, um, <laughs> those things to happen, drop it off and hit your kitchen table. You know, it, it, it's just, um, it's quite, quite the world we live in. Okay. So Tony, your quick response to that same question, what's one aspect of the returns world that would surprise consumers? Well, Howard hit it pretty well in terms of the misunderstanding of the, the, the buyer and the seller uh, purchaser of, of goods. But I want to add what's, what's completely unseen and is going to catch up. The higher returns are going to cost more somewhere. And that's ultimately probably going to cost us as a consumer more. Just like the global supply chain costs have skyrocketed, we expect them to settle down, but they've skyrocketed, right? Container costs, shipping costs, et cetera, have skyrocketed, and we're seeing inflation. The higher returns is going to drive costs, is driving costs, and will ultimately be a price that we're going to pay and unfortunately that's a much harder aspect again i'm really proud of 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 howard and b stock and companies like his that have found solutions for the returns what we haven't done much of is done anything to really prevent returns at the beginning um howard mentioned what's misunderstood is people think if if i buy it and i don't like it i can return it easy it, it isn't a question of buy what you really need, buy what you really want, and unfortunately, buy what should fit you. For example, in the apparel industry, it's a nightmare, right? right? Um, Howard sees a lot of apparel to liquidate because people are bracketing. They buy a size bigger, a size smaller, and they send it back. So it, it, it's unfortunate that uh, the front side of making a customer happy is only focused on making it easy to return rather than making sure they're buying what they really want and what they really need. And, and I do believe, and I've heard this over the years, most people don't buy something intending it to return. They didn't used to, but unfortunately we've enabled that in the e-commerce right. space. And there's some famous companies out there saying, buy as many different sizes as you want. We'll take them back as, forever and so that right. the, the misunderstanding for the consumer is they don't they don't see the impact it's going to cause on our cost of products that we buy uh, even with all the great solutions that b stock and others can offer we're seeing some increase in costs on the front end that that's a reflection of these higher returns so i I think that tends to be misunderstood. And frankly, uh, you know, Howard's being, uh, you know, both being patient, allowing me to, to talk about that a little bit because we rarely talk about that front end. How do you make the experience better so that they don't return it? And that that's just right. missed. Yes, missed to the tune of $67 billion in holiday gifts, I believe this season uh, being returned, which is about a 30% increase over 2020. So I, th I think, the, one of the points you mentioned here, Tony, is as as consumers, and all of us are, there's a responsibility that we have um, as we want, as as industry is trying to address sustainability and trying to become more of that circular economy. 
consumer plays a big part in that. And there are certain behaviors and, and uh, or all in all, a, a certain responsibility we have to embrace there in that regard in our but, buying and but purchasing Scott, decisions. Uh, one, one point, on, Scott, on numbers, they're much bigger. I, I think if you were to check with, say, a Zach Rogers, who's uh, focused on returns volume and the secondary market volumes, um, we're really more like 500 to 600 billion in returns in this country alone. And that's bigger than Walmart's volume and probably bigger than Amazon's volume. Five to 600 billion in returns is is enormous. Is that for and the year though? It, that's that for, for the, the year? year. Okay. That's for the so year. The, you mentioned 66 billion for returns for holiday shopping alone, right. but it is more like five to 600 billion for the year for all new goods channels. And a lot of it goes back on the shelf. So I don't want to make it that it's 600 billion that could be thrown away, but it's <clears> it's <throat> enormous numbers that uh, we want to make sure to say it's even bigger than the numbers we're, we're saying so far. Wonderful. I love having uh, a fact checked uh, mechanism as my, my shotgun partner here today, as always, Tony. I really appreciate that. Uh, but but you you bring that's, that's important context and perspective because it's not just uh, a seasonal uh, challenge that we're, we're we're dealing with and, and offering solutions for us. So that's a really important point. Um, okay, so finally, again, Howard Rosenberg, uh, B Stock. I really appreciate you spending some time with us here today. To um, as much as I enjoyed the B Stock um, story, and as much as I enjoyed to always talking returns and reverse logistics with Tony and the industry. I love, I appreciate you walking us through, especially the earliest aspects of your journey that, uh, you know, that your family of entrepreneurs and some of those early experiences and uh, just what you were willing to, what you, you know, getting to that eureka moment where you identify what you wanted to do, what, what you really want to go after and what you didn't want to do and, and you know, how faithful in a great way those decisions were. So Howard Rosenberg, uh, how can folks connect with you and the B-Stock team? Uh, probably the best way um, you, people can visit our website at bstock.com and you can always submit a contact us there if you want to talk to us in more depth. Also, people should just feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me very easily, Howard Rosenberg, B-Stock, I'll pop up. Happy to connect with with anybody. Um, and uh, yeah, I'd encourage folks to do that. Wonderful. Well, Howard, I hope you and your family get a chance to enjoy perhaps some some main lobsters here uh, as we wrap up 2021 and move into 2022. It's been a pleasure to get to know you better. And thanks so much for carving time out. Uh, Howard Rosenberg, founder and CEO of B-Stock. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Thank Howard. Thank you, Howard. All right, Mr. Tony Sheroda, man, Howard, I felt like uh, we need like a six installment conversation with Howard. There's so much yeah. more there, but for the sake of time, we had to keep moving forward. Um, but what was your, if you had to point to one of your favorite parts of what Howard shared here today, just one, I got 18 pages of notes, but if you had to point just to one, what would that be? Um, I, I think the fact that Howard took uh, an industry nightmare and created a viable solution 
and, and, and again, since I saw it and I got to cheat and, and borrow some of his ideas and made a huge difference at Phillips, I really appreciate that aspect of, his, of the vision. And sometimes I, 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 what I love about Howard is, is an industry thought leader who had this vision and it, and it just turned into a bigger tree than I think he even expected. And, and there's a lot to be said for the passion behind that. And uh, again, I'm lucky I've known Howard for close to 20 years and we used to share some of this uh, experience and, and uh, ideas uh, back when we were both on the RLA advisory board. Uh, way back in the early years, and we were both frustrated by some of the things going on uh, with the RLA in the early years, but we've turned that around, and Howard and B-Stock, not only uh, industry thought leaders, but they've been very active participants and supporters of our association, and that means a lot too, as you know, Scott, because we need support, we need industry leaders to go out there and help talk about what are we doing, what, are we, what can we do, the differences right. we can make, the stories... Howard shared were, were tremendous. So I'm, I'm really glad Agreed. we finally got them on live together with, with us, Scott. He's like, uh, and six Wyatt more Earp. chapters are needed. <laughs> yeah, we, we will need six more chapters. Agree with Howard. If we could talk him into sparing the time over the next uh, couple of years, we could, we could write a good book, Scott. That's right. Uh, he's like Wyatt Earp, you know, bringing law and order to the wild, wild west of returns, driving <laughs> lots of change. Uh, but really, really quick, and I want to make sure you make sure folks know how to connect with RLA. But, but one of my favorite parts was just how, you know, when he started talking about culture, how genuine and transparent and um, heartfelt his comments there. I mean, it was almost like it was date, you know, nothing's changed. It's as important as it was to him in day one, you know, when it, when it was, it was a, um, you know, infant startup business to where it is now. I mean, you can clearly, uh, the passion was palpable there. Um, all right. So yes. Tony, uh, we've got the big, uh, annual conference coming up, the reverse logistics uh, association conference and expo in Vegas, everything. Um, that's right. In person that coming, comes up in February. How can folks connect with you and the RLA? Everything that folks need is on our website. It is uh, rla.org. And we're just about to post the announcement of making our members safer by asking for proof of vaccination or proof of a negative test. We're implementing a program following the lead of the other major conferences that are going on. We want our members to be safe and to feel comfortable. Las Vegas has been open for some time. Scott, you and I have been there together. Um, it's a it's a great city to have an event like this in. It's a great venue at the Mirage Hotel. Uh, we will see. We're expecting upwards of a thousand people to be there in person. So uh, uh, there's a lot of pent up demand. People want to visit. And again, it's rla.org for everything you want to know about the Reverse Logistics Association, the upcoming conference. Uh, webinars that we feature with other industry thought leaders, not always people as good as Howard, but other industry leaders appear on our webinars. So uh, uh, rla.org, we hope to see them all there with you and I in Las Vegas in February. 
That's right. Uh, y'all check that out. Check out RLA.org. Be sure to connect with uh, Howard and the B-Stock team. Lots of uh, job opportunities there uh, and lots of thought leadership and, and uh, good disruption. Um, and join us in Vegas in February. Looking forward to that, Tony. Um, folks, hopefully you enjoyed this conversation as much as I have. Uh, Tony, a pleasure to continue this uh, returns and reverse logistics leadership series. And you're right. We don't always get a chance uh, to meet legends like Howard Rosenberg. But hey, this is an important industry uh, driving really important change across global business. Uh, folks, if you enjoy this, you can check out Supply Chain Now wherever you get your podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss conversations like we've, won, had, uh, like we've had here today. And beyond joining us in, in Vegas, uh, totally look forward to that. Uh, challenging all of our listeners to do, hey, be like Howard, do good, give forward, be the change that's needed. And on that note, we'll see you next time right back here at Supply Chain Now. Thanks, everybody. Great. Thanks. Thanks for being a part of our Supply Chain Now community. Check out all of our programming at supplychainnow.com and make sure you subscribe to Supply Chain Now anywhere you listen to podcasts. And follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next time on Supply Chain Now. Supply Chain Now.